Welcome to the REI Foundation Podcast, where we cover all the steps and strategies to make your real estate dreams a reality. Now your hosts, Jason and Peely. Well, hello again, and welcome to another edition of the Real Estate Investing Foundation Podcast with Jason and Peely. You have Jason today, and why Peely is out there making it happen, but we are in good hands because we have Brad Smotherman on the show. Brad, how you doing? Doing well, Jason. Appreciate you having me on. I've been looking forward to this all week. Well, we're really excited to have you on, and Brad has a lot going on. So a little bit about Brad. His main core real estate business, American Community Investments, it buys and sells to create owner finance notes. He's also gone ahead and created this awesome mastermind, Investor Creator Blueprint, really because he wasn't satisfied with the current mastermind or previous mastermind he was in before and wanted to be able to give a give back where people get the value they deserve within a mastermind. And on top of that, he's got this great podcast, Learn the Secrets to Creating a Successful seven-figure housekeeping business on the Investor Creator with Brad Smotherman. So Brad, welcome to the show. Man, excited to be here. I'm going to have so much fun with this. I'm probably just going to have to take a nap after we do this. <laughs> That's usually it, right? So you go on the, the Foundation Real Estate Investing Foundation show and you take a nap right after. We'll That's right. That's right. Good, good, good. Well, with so much going on, when and how did you get started? So I woke up one morning when I was 17 years old. And for some reason, I didn't go to, to bed thinking about real estate, but I got up thinking about real estate and getting my real estate license. And my thought was, uh, it was my senior year of high school. I was at, uh, you know, the very end of that and, and on my way to college. And I thought, well, you know, I, I can get my real estate license. I can learn a bit about an, an industry and probably make as much as I would bartending or waiting tables and all that. So uh, I contacted a a uh, former mentor of mine, um, I was raised by my grandparents. And when my grandfather passed away in eighth grade, my math teacher really kind of uh, stepped in and, and provided a, you know, a good, strong male role model for me. And I called him, he remembered me, and he had been a real estate agent. He retired from teaching as a math teacher to, you know, do his, his real estate side. And so I called him, he remembered me and he said, yeah, you know, you should do this. So that's kind of how I got started in real estate. So I was licensed from 2005 to 2010 as a licensee to sell real estate as a realtor. Uh, and I retired that license in 2010 just to do investment. Amazing. And did you go to college or did you just completely foresee that and jumped into this head on? No, I did go to college. I got my undergraduate in accounting and my master's in tax and, um, yeah, you know, I went into the accounting world for about 30 days. I realized pretty quickly it was not in my um, personality type to do that kind of work. Sure. Uh, you know, everybody needs tax accountants, so I'm not disparaging against tax accountants, but uh, it just wasn't for me, you know, and I went back into selling real estate uh, as luck would have it, uh, fall of 2008. Now, I don't know if you remember fall of 2008. It was not the best timing to go back into real estate sales, but we made it, you know, and I have a great wife that was super supportive. So, um, we made it and, and, you know, I pressure washed houses part-time to make ends meet uh, while I did that, started selling real estate again, and then retired that license in 2010. So in 2010, what was that moment where you said, okay, investments, I'm, I'm going head on. And where did you, why did you feel so comfortable to do that? Well, I wasn't comfortable at all. I wasn't comfortable at all. There's a lot of fear and a lot of doubt. And I think it's the same fear and doubt that a lot of people have when they start up. You know, we all start from the same place. You know, nobody is born having bought investment property. But, you know, from there, I, I just made the decision. It's like, uh, I, was, I was trying to do both. I was trying to do the investment and be a realtor. And what I found was like, I would go to the listing appointments and say, well, I can list it for this or I can buy it for this. Well, I listed houses and I couldn't buy anything. 
but that's not what I wanted for myself. And so it's like, okay, we'll burn the bridges, burn the ships. Let's go uh, be an investor having never bought an investment house before um, and retire this license. So I, I made it to where I had to do it. And it took me about eight months from that time to, to hit my first deal. But once I did, and I got a little bit of confidence in myself, then I began to do transactions every month and multiple times a month. And we kind of scaled up from there. Amazing. You, you remember what that first deal was and what it felt like to get that. Oh man, you, you never forget your first. So um, basically I still remember even the, the, the lead when it came in because I was so beat up emotionally. I'd, I had all these calls and I hadn't converted anything. And you know, it's like everyone that you feel like you should be able to do and you can't, it, it doesn't do much for your confidence. So I was just like really beat up. And I remember just looking at the voicemail and like, I just don't want to listen to another voicemail. I don't want to talk to another seller. It's like, Hey, put the big boy pants on Brad. Like you decided you wanted this. And so I called the guy and it wasn't that much unlike any other uh, call that I had. I went to the house. It was a divorce situation and they were two, two payments behind. So to put numbers to the deal, I bought it for 97,000, which is what they owed subject to. And I sold it for 135,000 with 20,000 down in three days. And so I got a $20,000 down payment net to me. And that felt like $20 million because I had like $300 in the bank at the time. So from there, it's like, okay, uh, let's put more of that money. I think I put like four or 5,000 into marketing and, and really started to scale up. Wow. That's incredible. And that's more of an advanced strategy than people do for their first deal. Was that your strategy from the start or you just find a deal and found the best opportunity to work with that deal? No, it was the way that, uh, that I decided to do it. And it was the way that I thought was the best way. Cause number one, I had no money, you know, like I, w I couldn't go and pay cash for a house. I didn't have any financial backing. My credit was extended with the bank at, with the house that my wife and I owned as an owner occupant. And so, you know, we had to find another way. And luckily I had a great mentor, David Alexander, who taught me how to create wraps and create financing. So, um, it was just the best way to, to do that market. And I, I, my, my guess is with the market kind of stabilizing and, and starting to dip in certain metros, that it's going to be once again, the best way to do real estate. So let's fast forward, right? That, that's a great entry point. And now if we fast forward to today, what does your business look like and where's your core focus? Yeah, my, my core focus is once again on creating notes. So kind of like the evolution of my business was I started doing the, the deals like I just explained. And then I was like, okay, we built up some capital and I started marketing more and more. And I thought, well, the real money is in uh, doing these big fix and flips like the Joanna HG, HGTV style uh, fix and flips. And so I bought some of those and did these gut down reframes. And I, I realized pretty quickly, I do not have the attention span for that. Um, my personal thought is that there's more money in the financing than the fixing. And so I decided, okay, you know, after doing that for a long time, maybe three or four years, I decided, okay, like, let's go back to what we started with. Because at the end of the year, I decided like, let's take my top 10 deals for the year and see like what made them great. And let's try to focus on those kinds of, of, of deals. And I thought, well, maybe we'll see, um, some similarities in like the marketing or the, the lead type or whatever. Yeah. And what I found was that seven of the 10 were owner finance transactions. So it's like, okay, th those were our highest profit. They were our easiest transactions and we're still getting paid on those today. So it's like, Hey, you know, let's just keep creating the notes. Yeah. Highest profit, easiest transactions, and still getting paid on today. So if people are listening to why he continues with this method, well, that's 
three pretty strong methods right there of why you I thought it made sense. It sure does. It sure does. So on a, on a volume standpoint today, how many transactions do you look to do per month, per year, however you factor it? And what does your team look like? Yeah. So to, to put it in perspective, I don't really look at the transaction numbers. You know, I'm really, I'm really core focused on hitting the equity positions that we want to hit. Okay. So, um, I have friends of mine that, that do 250 transactions a year and that kind of thing. And that's fine, but they're strictly wholesaling. So I think their average wholesale fee is somewhere around $12,000 and they have, you know, all this marketing going out and they have a staff of 15 or 20 people, you know, and by the time it's all over, they're making what we are on maybe 15 or 20 transactions, you know? So it's just like, I'd rather just have lower volume and, and take the lion's share of the profit and we can do that easier, in my opinion, by creating owner financing. I love that. And you, you spoke about equity position. Can you talk to that a little bit and maybe give us an example? You gave us a great example of your first deal, but let's talk maybe about a common deal now, how you try to structure it. Yeah. And, and that deal, the first one is not really unlike many of the, the situations that we get in. Um, so let me take a deal. We actually got the contract on this one this morning. Uh, there's $115,000 owed on the property. And we got a really great rate. It's at a 4% rate. Okay. So we're taking that subject to our sellers getting 15,000 at close. So I'm in the deal at $130,000, but I can owner finance this house for 200. Okay. So I'll probably get a $25,000 down payment. That's our average. So I'll have a $175,000 note that's wrapped around $115,000 underlying. So I'll have a $60,000 note. I'll make roughly what, $10,000 on the down payment because I have 15,000 going to my seller. I'll have 25,000 coming to me. So I'll have a $70,000 profit that begins to grow over time. So by the time this thing cashes out, it may be at 80 or you know, 85, something like that, depending, depending on how long it stays there. But this deal will cash flow probably, I don't know, six or $700 a month, you know, on, on, on a deal that I have no money in and I got paid to put together. So, I mean, that's the power of, of, of what we do because, you know, I'm not anti wholesaler, but I'm not the, the, the biggest fan of wholesaling because on this kind of deal, they may make 10 or $15,000 or maybe 20, but we're making the same amount day one and getting the note. And so we'd rather do that transaction and keep the lion's share of the profit. So you've been doing this for a couple of years now. Is there, are you seeing there's an average hold time for these notes for you before someone takes you out? Yeah, of they're going to default or pay off in five years. Understood. Understood. So that's usually where the metrics fall. So default or pay off within five years to some standpoint. Good. Good. To Correct. Thank you for that. So we've now taken to the point here and your team, are, are you just still running it as yourself? Cause you're able to handle it so much more in house. Cause you're doing just transactions that really pull a ton more equity than if you are trying to take on hundred transactions. No, I still have to have help. So um, probably 80% of my business now is the owner finance market and maybe 20% is going retail. So we generate enough cash for us to like continue to fund the business because sometimes we'll have transactions that, that have a, a net cash outlay for us to capture the note and that's okay. So um, like, for example, I have a transaction right now where we're buying the house for 20,000 cash, but I can owner finance it for 79 with probably 10 K down. So I'll have $10,000 wrapped up in, in basically creating a $69,000 note, which is fine, but we still have some cash outlay. So um, I have a full-time acquisition person. I have a full-time um, project manager that manages the rehab side, and he has a few 
employees. I have a couple of VAs and I have a half-time disposition person, which I, I really need to kick up to uh, a full-time person because we, we've really got a whole lot right now going on. But uh, I mean, that, that's kind of our, our team structure. So the it's pretty lean, I think. Your, your end buyer is typically, so if you're, if you're doing wholesales, typically your end buyer is going to be a cash buyer. But for these wraps, you're, you're, you're basically looking to an end buyer. How, how is your marketing for dispositions different or how, how are you sourcing these, these end buyers for these deals compared to what you would be doing as a wholesale opportunity? Yeah. And I don't know that it really is that different. Um, I'd say it partly is, but I mean, our biggest three ways to generate motivated buyers are uh, Craigslist ads, Facebook ads, whether it's on the marketplace or paid ads or the, the local Facebook groups. Um, but we also do bandit signs and that's the only uh, reason that I do bandit signs now, even though that's how I used to buy houses. Now it's just to sell. So we'll create a bandit sign that says like owner financing must sell, no banks needed, a little bit about the house and then a phone number. And that phone number drives to a dead end voicemail that tells them about the house, about how owner financing works. And so by the time they get in front of the house and they call someone that's live, they, they've seen the house, they've seen the neighborhood, they know the price, they know the terms of the deal, and they know that they have to have a reasonable down payment. So we don't want to talk to anybody until that point because, I mean, we can put signs out and have like 100, 200 calls over a weekend. I mean, it's outrageous, you know, because the, the owner finance buyer pool is, is a pretty big pool and the supply demand curve is much different, okay? So, um, if you take a Metro with 3000 houses on the market, you'd be tough pressed to find 30 houses that are offered with owner financing. So if that's a case, you know, you have a lot of buyers that are, are contending for those 30 houses. And so it becomes, it, it can get kind of crazy. Sometimes we've had situations where there's uh, you know six or seven people, all that have down payments that want the house. And so it doesn't necessarily turn into an auction at that point, but there's no negotiation that happens. They cannot negotiate when they're in the same house and everybody's in a different room and we're saying, well, we're going to talk to the Jones and the Smith family next, but I mean, what's the best you can do? What's your best down payment? What's your income? You know, and we're talking about that. So it makes a big difference. What market are you in? So I'm based out of Nashville, Tennessee, but I've bought now in 16 States. Wow. Do you find there's a medium price point or, or maybe an income to, I guess, income to price that works for markets where, where maybe, you know, houses are either too expensive where it doesn't work for that model. Yeah. And I think that truths are found in extremes. So if I tried to owner finance, say like a $25 million house, I'm sure I'd have some trouble with that. Um, but I think as long as we're somewhere in the ballpark of median or below that we're, we're going to be just fine. Or if we have a unique product. So I mean, one of the things that I've found is that if we have a product that has some acreage, like if we're, we have three or four or five acres, that it almost doesn't matter where it is. You know, people want that land. But um, I mean, we, we've really never had a, any trouble with, with selling the houses. Let's transition a little bit. So you're, you're in 16 states. How do you source the next state or is there certain parts in a market that, that you look to identify besides price point that you say, okay, I'm going to go into this market? Yeah. So what I would say is that um, we're not necessarily looking for what state we're looking for what not state. Okay. Or what not market. So right now we're running Google ads in 126 metros. And we, we did that because we, we had a set budget and we wanted to capture as much as we can. And because we're going wide uh, we're able to bid a lot less per keyword and still keep the same amount of lead flow. So uh, from that, I really don't want to play in, in markets that are 
like not exactly investor friendly. So like Washington being one of those, uh, possibly California, and also in markets that have a, a median price range that's just really outside of my wheelhouse. So if the median price is over half a million dollars, it's really not something that I'm comfortable with coming from a market that's roughly half that. So I would rather just, you know, stick with similar markets to the Nashville market. But luckily, I mean, Nashville is from a demographic perspective, a, a fairly representative market of the country. So um, we can take our model and pretty, not exactly go anywhere with it. Some markets are certainly easier than others, but pretty much go where we want to go. Now you spoke about looking to expand on your disposition pro, uh, person. Is there another significant role or, or part of your business that you're working on to solidify right now? Not exactly, you know, I, and I'm kind of to a, a position where um, we we're either going to have to make it really big or, um, or just keep it the way it is. And I, I don't think that there's going to be a way to do, to do like in the middle. Okay. Um, we're to the point now that we're creating so much in node equity that it, it's just becoming almost unmanageable to deal with, you know? So, um, I would say as of tomorrow, we would, and today's what the 20th, we will have created 300,000 in node equity this month. Wow. And so it's like, if we continue on that track, it's, it's going to get to be a, a pretty, pretty much a conglomerate, you know, it's going to be difficult to manage. So uh, we're, we're going to have to make those decisions. And I'm talking to some people about that. So what is your end game right now? Would you have, do you have a focus on where you want to be with this process or other? I, I don't know. Um, and I've looked at other assets. So at, there was a time whenever I thought, okay, you know, like let's have, because my, my, uh, note should cash out over five years. Okay. So it's like, okay, if we're creating two or 3 million bucks to note equity a year, and when we're projecting to receive that in four or five years, plus everything we've already built, then, um, we're going to, to have excess cash at some point in the next five to 10 years. Right. Yeah. So I thought, well, maybe like we go in and we buy multifamily or we buy strips or mobile home parks or something. And I can't find an asset class on the commercial side that interests me. Because I don't understand how someone, I mean, in, in the Nashville market, these REITs and everybody are buying at, you know, four caps and five caps and maybe six, you know, I don't understand how that works because uh, cash on cash on a lot of our notes, we're getting like 20 to 40%. So it's like, I, I don't, I don't understand. I don't understand how that works. So somebody out there and they have more money than I do. So they're not stupid, but they have it figured out where I don't. Yeah, that's okay, man. You stay in your lane, right? So it works for you. You keep rolling with. And looking at how productive you've been with your business, do you have a routine that you stick to for your days that help you be most beneficial to just hone in on your focus? To a point, I mean, we have to be somewhat flexible because if we're not flexible, we're going to have things come up. So that's why I really don't like for myself time blocking because I know that if the right deal comes in, like, not necessarily right now because this podcast is like the priority right now, but right after this podcast that I'm like getting in my car and I'm going somewhere. Well, I didn't plan for that at 8 a.m. So um, for me, I really like to wake up and, and do my affirmations. And also um, I have a, a list of things that I'm grateful for, go through my, my list of what I'm grateful for. And that just kind of like primes me to have the right perspective for the day. And then I'll, I'll go to the gym because I want to get that out of the way. So it's like, I'm, I'm feeding my mind. I'm feeding my body first. And then from there, uh, I feel like I'm, I'm in a decent position and I have a good platform to be productive throughout the day. I love 
that. Do you have words that you, you live by? I would say I have a, a lot of little sayings that I live by. Um, you know, I'm not sure. So, I mean, one of them is uh, never underestimate how wrong you can be. So we try to be really conservative in our numbers and our purchases. And, and, you know, if, if you have to spreadsheet a deal, you don't have a deal, you know, deals are obvious. Uh, another one is anything works at a price. So we can have a terrible looking house. We've actually had people pay us to take houses before, you know, so anything works at a price. Um, focus on the few, not the many. You know, we want to, I'm a believer in the 80, 20 rule. So let's focus on the 20% that creates the, the 80% output. So, I mean, I, I have different things like that, that I, uh, I, I wouldn't say, uh, base my life on, but, uh, definitely, definitely want to adhere to, to a certain perspective. Sure. Yeah. Incredible. I love those. And looking at your, your business, you've created this mastermind because you want to create this gift back that you couldn't find before. What is your big why for doing all this? On, on the, the real estate investing side or the mentorship side? However you want to take it. Yeah. Um, so on my business side, it's about creating something that outlives me. So it's like, I have a, I have a three and a half year old little girl and I have a 10 month old boy. And, um, I've always been mindful that I wanted to have a family and I wanted to be able to leave them with something, you know, and that's not just financial. Okay. I think a lot of people sacrifice the family side for the financial side. And that's like the biggest waste that I can imagine, you know, um, I want to, to have an asset that is an asset base that is self-perpetuating. So if, if I can create enough note equity to where when it cashes out, it's going into a trust and it, you know, let's say it's uh, 10 million bucks with a 10% yield and we can't spend a million dollars a year. It's like, I don't live a lifestyle where I can spend a million dollars a year. That, that, that trust will continue to grow. You know, that, that trust will continue to grow. So that's on um, the real estate side. That's, that's my goal. On the, the mentor side, um, it's a lot more fun to have mentees of mine do deals than, than for me to do another deal. So um, I, I know the struggle that it takes to get through that learning curve and to, to be able to pull people across the goal line is just so satisfying for me. I love that. Looking at someone listening to the podcast today, maybe first time listening to real estate or, or they're just sitting in a, in a role in their life that they know they want to make a change. Someone who's actively looking to get into real estate today, maybe they love your process. What, what's a good step for them to take today to take that first step towards a, a new outcome? I think that um, if someone was really thinking about it, you know, I, I would say that maybe take, 10 or 20 hours and do the research on the niche that really calls to you. And I would really recommend that you take some time by yourself in quiet, try to quiet your mind and ask yourself if, is, if this is what you really want, because I think a lot of people, they see the TV shows and they see the, you know, quote unquote glitz and glamor and all that, if there is such a thing. And they, they think, Oh, you know, that appeals to them but they're not willing to take the sacrifices uh, to do the sacrifices that it takes to see that outcome. So if you have the commitment and, and I mean like a real commitment. So it's like in my, I think business, business and relationships have great parallels. So in my marriage, now I'm married. I got married about 10 years ago. And in my marriage, we made the commitment that there's no such thing as divorce, you know? And that's the, the same commitment that you have to have to the business 
to get through the learning curve. It's like, we're going to do this, but we're going to die trying to do this, right? So if you take the time and you really make that commitment to yourself, everything else will happen. You know, you're going to have to pivot. There's going to be things change. You're going to have obstacles, but anything worth doing takes time. But anybody really can do this business. Guys, I started with no money. I had no credit that I could use. And I, I certainly didn't know what the heck I was doing. So it's like had no knowledge and I had very little time. <laughs> okay. So it's like anybody can do this business, but uh, you have to make the commitment, make the commitment to yourself. That was awesome. Thank you for that. Now, Brad, if others are listening today, they want to connect with you, find out more about you, your podcast, your, your mastermind, what's the best way to connect with you? Yeah, you can find me on bradsmotherman.com. I've also got a podcast investor creator on iTunes as well as the various other places. We talk about real estate, notes, negotiation, all the fun things that I think are fun. My wife doesn't think they're that fun anymore, but uh, she, she like uh, begrudgingly listens to me, uh, which I can understand after roughly 14 years of dating uh, that she doesn't want to hear about it anymore. Uh, and you can, for those inclined, you can add me as a friend on Facebook. There's not so many Brad Smothermans out there, but uh, you can find me there and I'm happy to chat with you about real estate, which is one of my favorite things to talk about. Brad, this has been amazing. Thank you so much. Really appreciate your time today. Jason, enjoyed it, man. Awesome. Well, this is Jason with the Real Estate Investing Foundation podcast. Thank you to all the listeners out there. Really enjoyed our talk with Brad today. We'll talk to you shortly. Bye now. Thanks for tuning into the REI Foundation podcast. Check back next time for more awesome tips and strategies to launch your new you in real estate.